But before you've got uh, Acts chapter 4 to read, let me pray and ask God to help us understand. Father, we need your help because we look at the Bible the way we look at a mirror. We'd like it to show us how good-looking we are to ourselves and to others. We don't want to look more deeply at how ugly our hearts are in front of you. And so we pray for the help of your Holy Spirit to give us that supernatural gift of humility and to give us a new desire to live joyfully in your presence. And we ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Acts chapter 4, and we've read 1 to 31 last week. Tonight we start Acts chapter 4, verse 32. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who also was called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. But a man named Ananias, with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property and with his wife's knowledge he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last, and great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young man rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, Tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, Yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, How is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell at his feet and breathed her last. When the young man came in, 
they found her dead and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband and great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles and they were all together in Solomon's portico none of the rest dared join them but the people held them in high esteem and more than ever believers were added to the Lord multitudes of both men and women so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats that as Peter came by at least his shadow might fall on some of them the people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits and they were all healed but here's a question I want to ask as we start and that is what do you want out of church is it to be a fun place where people are nice where God is comforting and God can be presented as a butler who's there to look after the needs of people. So it's very disconcerting when you open this part of the Bible and church becomes a place where God kills people. And that, that's a surprise. We've got new things to learn about him from Acts chapter 4 verse 32 to chapter 5 verse 16. And if things are new, they are well worth remembering. So let me use two headings to try and help you remember what we'll look at tonight. First, heaven, and the second heading, yeah. Uh, so there we are. First heading, heaven. And I'm hoping you guess that it's a heading that fits this part of the Bible, especially the end of chapter 4, where everybody is together, one heart, one mind, and they look after each other. Now, way back in the Old Testament, in Deuteronomy chapter 15, verse 4, Moses said a special year would come, and in that special year, I don't know if you can read the words on the screen, it says, there will be no poor among you. For the Lord will bless you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you for inheritors to possess, and part of the blessing of God may it arise, is that there would be no poor among them. And then you look and you see Acts chapter 4, verse 34. Here's the snapshot of Deuteronomy 15 coming true. There was not a needy person among them. Acts chapter 4, verse 34. And so therefore, it's a huge chapter as the day of blessing comes on God's people. And in Acts chapter 4, everything is changing. If you've read the Old Testament, you know the big thing in the Old Testament was the temple that they had in Jerusalem. And that is the dwelling place of God with his people. But when you start chapter 4, you see that the temple authorities now are the ones who are opposing God's people. They put Peter and John on trial. And verse 11 tells us that those leaders are like the builders who've rejected Jesus and now the temple is missing the most important stone. 
But verse 11 also tells us that that stone that they rejected that isn't in the temple is actually the starter stone, the foundation stone, the cornerstone of a new temple. Only this time it's made out of people. And so what's uh, uh, now uh, the important focus of God's blessing, if you like, the dwelling place of God where he does his work, is in the church, called the church for the first time in uh, Acts chapter 5, verse 11. And you look at the end of chapter 5, the bit that we read, verses 12 to 16, and you see it's now in this place that the dwelling place of God seems to be where God is doing his work. The old authorities are finished, God's with the new leader, Peter. And what you're seeing as this change takes place is that the new temple that God is building, and that is his people, are going to be a foretaste of heaven. And you see that at the end of uh, chapter 4, and it's not surprising why you see that in chapter 4, because if you look closely at verse 33, you discover that uh, the foundation teaching that the disciples are giving in chapter 4, verse 33, is the testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And you can see how verse 33, the testimony of the resurrection, is then linked with great grace coming on them all. So the new life is linked to and follows from the constant testimony of the resurrection. The new life, the new message of heaven, if you like, in verse 33, is lived out. And heaven is lived out in verse 34. So resurrection is preached, resurrection is lived. You've got heaven in the church. And giving up money was, well, not just the one thing they gave up, they gave up their land. And land is what gives you all your security for the future. But now they have a new future. So they give up the fleeting pleasures for lasting treasures. And there's a big change. In the Old Testament, they looked at the law, and the law spoke about giving 10% of your income. New Testament giving looks at heaven and uh, won't stop until the needs are met. So there's no, let's give the least we can. Instead, let's give the most we can. And Barnabas is just a worked example of that in verses 36 and 37. He is an encouragement to other people. He's called the son of encouragement, not because he's saying encouraging things all the time, although I'm sure he did, but because he shines out heaven in the way that he uses his money. He says to himself, I'm going to be like this one day in the kingdom of Jesus. So let, let me be a little bit like this now with this field that I own. And so giving shines out heaven and out of the new heart the Christians have.
Now, obviously, not everyone is giving. Lots are receiving. But I think the way it's presented here is that those who receive would love to give in their turn. They would. And so, therefore, the interesting mark of the, Old Test or the New Testament and the uh, difference that it brings is that when Paul writes uh, to uh, Christians in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 28, he says, Let not the thief steal anymore, but let him earn to pay his way and have enough to give. So the thief is ultimately the heart that wants things for himself, but now he's going to have a new heart that will look after himself, but primarily he's earning to give. The new heart is never happy just to be content with the bills being paid. The desire is to go out and to be generous. That is a foretaste of heaven and a measure of heaven when you see it happening on earth. Second uh, heading then, hell. And I'm happy, I think, to use that title. Well, I'm not, but it's there, I think, to be used. If you look at chapter 5, verses 1 to 11, you see it's a foretaste of hell as people die under the judgment of God and you see Satan filling the heart in verse 3. What can we learn from these horrible verses? Which are a surprise to read. First thing you read is that actually the early church is an imperfect church. Yes, it's got traces of heaven, it's got traces of hell, deep flaws. As I said, verse 11 is the first time church is used, and the first time church is used is about something that is defective. Someone once wisely said, I think, if you see things go wrong in church, don't be surprised. If you see something go right in a church, rejoice greatly. God is showing you his future. Second thing you learn is that the devil's strategy is to introduce hypocrisy. That's his second strategy. His first strategy is to introduce persecution. We saw that last week and we'll see it next week. But his second strategy is to introduce hypocrisy. Now, notice that Ananias and Sapphira are not being punished for sin. Sin is normal and sin is forgiven. What they are punished for is pretense. Pretending that they are okay. What they do is they join the queue of people who are wanting to give, but really they don't want to give. It matters to stand in the queue and to be seen by people on the outside. And that matters more than what God sees on the inside. And we're always heart full of devil when we pretend. And it says that great fear came upon them in verse 5. It says that again in verse 11. Because great fear comes when you realize God's watching and it doesn't matter about the others. And so great fear is something that ultimately helps the church to see, no, it doesn't really 
help to be a Nasafara, serving what other people think. It matters to be live in front of God and uh, be very concerned to how he thinks. And the third thing we see, the first thing we see is the church is imperfect, the second thing we see is devil's strategy is hypocrisy, and then the third thing we see is that church people will be judged. That's interesting, isn't it? Because we normally think that hell is for people who've murdered. We don't normally think hell is for people who have given money that they didn't even need to give. It was all there at the start and they didn't need to give a penny of it. But God hates deception and he judges deception and he sends deception to hell. And very interesting, at the start of the Old Testament part of the Bible, when God's people are, if you like, beginning their life together and they go into the promised land, a man whose name begins with A called Achan hid treasure and died. And now here you are in the New Testament and things are starting again and there's another man. His name begins with A and he hides treasure and he dies. It's like God is putting two great warning signs. One at the start of the Old Testament and the people of God coming together there and one at the start of the New Testament. And he tells us, this is what happens. Don't pretend. And the reason why it is like that, I think, is because ultimately pretense is like yeast. It spreads everywhere. It is corrosive. Ultimately, everyone will begin to do that if God doesn't show us how seriously wrong it is. And in every church, there are people who are not Christians, where a love for this life is strong, and a desire to live heaven generously is weak. And my hypocrisy will spread to others. And chapter 5 tells me what God will do with my hypocrisy and with your hypocrisy. He's giving us time. We haven't died instantly. But he also has given us warning. We will die the way that Ananias and Sapphira did. This is how God deals with hypocrisy in the church. So how might that view of heaven and hell affect us today. The first thing I think we want to say is if you're not a Christian, don't rush to become one. In verse 13, you see, sorry, chapter 5 verse 13, none of the rest dare join them. Don't rush to join God's people if you want God to make this life easier. Only become one of God's people if you want heaven and you want to seriously live heaven now, serving others whatever it costs. So think long and hard about what you love about this life 
but which might clash with the love for heaven and turn from those things and ask God to save you for heaven and to put a love for heaven so much in your heart that you live heaven. That's what it means to be believed, to be a believer. And if that's where you are, come and be baptized and be part of God's family living in this way. <coughs> what happens if you're part of uh, the church scene, have been for years? Well, it's worth seeing, isn't it, that the warning is against hypocrisy in church. And it is interesting how Ananias and Sapphira might have called themselves Christians, and you and I might call ourselves Christians, but calling ourselves names is no protection against future judgment. If ultimately the heart is unchanged, what you call yourself is really like a flimsy umbrella that you hold up, which is no protection against the building that's coming crashing down. And there are people here, my friends, who will face judgment, not because we have got things wrong. God can wonderfully forgive anything. And if your heart is weighed with a conscience of something that is on your mind, think of that thing as a matchstick that can be dropped in the ocean of God's mercy and will never be seen again. There is always forgiveness when we fail. But what cannot be forgiven is the person who doesn't think they have failed. The one who thinks we're respectable, we're going to heaven. Other people look on us and think we're Christians, we look on us and we think we're Christians. But why don't you run a heart check on your generosity? Do you want to live heaven in that area of your life? And that might be a greater indicator of our closeness to Ananias and Sapphira than we are to the real people of God. Remember, Ananias and Sapphira just mentioned once that they are seriously a couple you will never want to forget. Because they are there as a great signpost to what happens to hypocrites. What if you are, sorry, I saw it on this screen but I didn't see it on that one. Uh, there you are. Incidentally, you've got to be very clever if you understand that, that picture is a hypocrite. You can see the crosses there, but actually what they're telling you is that their heart and mind filled with the devil's love of this life without living in God's kingdom. We're here. What if you are a real believer and you want to live for the gospel. That's what real believers do. But my friends, I want to suggest that a good place for us to start is to realize humbly that we are hypocrites. Because our hearts do love this life. 
We swim in the sea of materialism all the time. It's hardly surprising if we've drunk a lot of that water. And therefore we need each other to expose our hypocrisy. Because that's where the devil wants to lead us. And we need friends to grab us and show us that's where we're going. That doesn't mean that we are so uh, in each other's lives that we keep interfering, but it does mean that we should challenge each other about our consistency. <coughs> well, Peter asks the Father, doesn't he, in verse 8, about her claim to give, and the early church doesn't say he was wrong for doing that. And we need to be a church that takes hypocrisy really seriously. <coughs> and we need to take that warning home personally, individually, for two reasons. Number one, because our private sins will affect <coughs> our whole fellowship. Don't quite know how it works, because they could be private and they could be unknown to everybody else. But ultimately my sin is like a contagious <coughs> disease. And you will catch it even though you don't know that I have it. So I need to take steps to get rid of it and to repent. But secondly, God, the reason why we take our hypocrisy seriously and turn away from it is because God blesses his church when it deals with hypocrisy or rather when it is dealt with. It is interesting isn't it to look at verse 14 after hypocrisy is removed verse 14 says that more than ever believers were added to the Lord multitudes of men and women. And so we need to go from uh, the gaze of people wanting to live for the opinion of others and privately stand in the gaze of God. It is a blessing to have the fear of the Lord because the fear of the Lord means it only matters to us what he thinks. If you don't have the fear of the Lord it will matter to you what other people think. So the fear of the Lord is a massive blessing to have. Ask God to fill your heart with his fear because with this fear, because it means that ultimately only what he thinks is going to create that imprint on your life. So root out the ways that uh, this life has gripped your heart and ask him to give you a love for heaven, because that will bring his blessings to you and his blessings to the fellowship as well. Or if all that is too much for you to take in, here's a simple summary. Let's go from being an Ananias to being a Barnabas. Let's go from being a man who is gripped by this world to a man who is gripped by a desire to live heaven. More importantly, let's go from being a man who in the end is under the judgment of God and in hell to the man who is a child of heaven.
and shines out heaven in the way that he lives and shines out heaven in the way that he gives. Let's keep those two things together because what God has joined together must not be separated. Well, let's ask God to help us to do that. In a moment of silence, you might want to talk to God in your response to what you've heard and then I'll pray. Then we'll take questions. Well, let me pray as we finish. Our Heavenly Father, we pray that as a result of tonight, we may not live out of a live out of a desire for fun, but out of a desire to fear you. We ask this that we may know the deeper joy that comes out of love, loving your promises in our praises, loving your future in the responses we make, and loving your people in the generosity we give. Change our love from fleeting pressures to lasting treasures. And we ask this for our good and for your glory. Amen. Amen.